My name is Elise Neville. This is Wrestling Before God, episode number three, Gifts and Experience. Wrestling Before God is the podcast where an average member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, me, discusses how I wrestle with some of the biggest questions I have in the scriptures for this week's Come Follow Me lesson. Thanks for being here. So as I was reading today's Come Follow Me lesson, all I was thinking about were two questions. First of all, why is section seven in between these sections about Oliver Cowdery? And the second question was, what does Oliver's experiment and translation teach us about the nature of God? So let's talk about how I got to those questions and give a little background for those questions. So sections six through nine are primarily centered around Oliver Cowdery and his work in the Book of Mormon. He's come to help Joseph Smith as Joseph translates, and he gets a lot of opportunities to experiment with revelation. And that's what sections six through nine really focus on. But then there's this weird section in the middle, which is section number seven. And what it sounds like happened is Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith were having the discussion about what had happened to John the Beloved. And to kind of, I guess, settle this difference of opinion, they went to the Urim and Thummim and asked the question, what happened to John the Beloved? And the result we get is section seven. And Joseph Smith calls this a translation of a papyri that John the Beloved wrote. As a side note, this is really interesting to me that Joseph calls this a translation. And I think we need to use this definition of translation when we discuss his other translations, right? Because Joseph doesn't actually have the papyri in front of him. He's not looking at the text and like putting the Urim and Thummim on top of it to understand and translate into English. That's not what's happening. What's happening is he's having this revelation of what this papyri says that's coming to him through the Urim and Thummim. And I think that really will help inform us in future discussions about what this translation process looks like. Anyway, section seven does eventually reveal that John the Beloved has stayed on earth and is using his time to help people on earth come to God. And it's a weird side note sandwiched in between these sections. I really feel like there must be a purpose to that being where it is. So that's my first question. Question number two, what does Oliver's experiment and translation tell us about God? So this is one of those questions that I really wrestle with. I pay a lot of attention to the way that I feel as I read the scriptures. And as I'm reading, if I read something that makes me really uncomfortable, I know, okay, that's something I need to learn about. That's a question I have. In section eight, Oliver Cowdery has essentially asked if he can also try to translate. And through section eight, the Lord reveals, absolutely, you have the gift of revelation. Go ahead and try that. We don't have details on how that translation went, but it sounds like it didn't go super smoothly. And my impression of this comes from what the Lord says to Oliver Cowdery in section nine. He says, it is not expedient that you should translate at this present time. So when I think of expedience, for some reason, the definition I go to is necessary. It's not necessary or important for you to translate at this present time. It's not actually our definition in the modern day. Our modern definition for expedient is convenient and practical, but possibly improper or immoral. So I don't think that is what the Lord meant by expedient. Words change, and eventually they mean different things. And in 1828, according to the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, expedient meant literally hastening 
urging forward. It has that hurry characteristic, which I think gives a completely different meaning to this scripture. Instead of it's not necessary or important for you to translate at this time, he says, it's not hastening forth the work that you should translate at this time. So Oliver must have been slow at it. The Lord continues in verse four, behold, the work which you are called to do is to write for my servant, Joseph. Verse five, and behold, it is because that you did not continue as you commenced when you began to translate that I have taken away this privilege from you. Do not murmur, my son, for it is wisdom in me that I have dealt with you after this manner. Behold, you have not understood. You supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought save it was to ask me. Verse 10, now, if you had known this, you could have translated. Nevertheless, it is not expedient that you should translate now. Okay, it's at this point where I start to feel really uncomfortable. I start to think, well, wait, the Lord is saying that if he had just told Oliver this thing, if he told him the process of translation and how it works, then Oliver would have been able to translate. So why not tell him beforehand? Why not give Oliver the information he needs to be successful in this moment? This doesn't sound like a God of love to me. It sounds like Oliver was set up for failure in this situation. Okay, so again, when I have one of these situations where I feel uncomfortable, I remember what my stakes are. We talked about that last time. And my very first stake in the gospel is God loves his children. So although it may sound to me in this situation like God is being petty and unfair with Oliver, because I know that God is a God of love based on so much evidence, then the scripture has to mean something different than what I'm making it mean. And that brings us back to my second question. What does Oliver's experiment in translation tell us about God? Okay, so these two questions, what's the significance of section seven, and what does Oliver's experiment tell us about God's nature, really can only be answered in the context of some historical evidence. We've got to go into Oliver's life. (laughs) So hang in there with me. This is going to be long, but I promise it will be interesting. I just want to start by saying I have a deep kinship with Oliver Cowdery. I have always really loved him. This is partly due to a seminary teacher I had in high school. Her name actually was Sister Oliver, and she did such a wonderful job of researching the Doctrine and Covenants before she came to class, and she humanized the people in the scriptures for me. And so Oliver just always held this tender spot in my heart because she made him real. The other reason I really love Oliver Cowdery is because of of a book I read by Richard Anderson about the three witnesses, and I will link to that in the show notes. Oliver's really important in the history of the church. He got involved early on. Most of you are familiar with the story. He came into Palmyra as a teacher. He's staying with Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy Mack Smith. And of course, he hears discussion in the town of Joseph Smith's gold plates, and he asks questions. By this time, Joseph Smith is living with Emma and Harmony, and his parents are reluctant to talk. Of course, it's been a difficult go for them with all of these rumors about their family, but he will not let it go. And eventually, perhaps because of the revelation Joseph Smith Sr. receives from his son um, in section four about proclaiming the gospel, he does share with Oliver Cowdery the story of the gold plates. And this story deeply moves Oliver. He can't think about anything else. According to Lucy Mack Smith, she records in her history that Oliver said, quote, The subject upon which we were yesterday conversing, so this is Oliver talking, seems working in my very bones. 
and I cannot for a moment get it out of my mind. Close quote. Later on, we learn more about Oliver's initial experiences from Joseph Smith's history. Joseph says that the Lord appeared to Oliver Cowdery and showed unto him the plates in a vision, and also the truth of the work and what the Lord was about to do through me, his unworthy servant. Therefore, he was desirous to come and write for me to translate. Close quote. So Oliver shows up to help Joseph translate, and they get started right away. They meet on April 6th, and they get right to work on April 7th. So Joseph Smith has had several scribes in this translation process. Emma, Martin Harris, Hiram Smith, others that we can't really identify. But Oliver is unmatched. According to Royal Skousen, a Book of Mormon scholar who has done some incredible work, I'll link to him in the show notes also, he says, quote, Oliver was by far the best scribe that worked on the Book of Mormon manuscripts, close quote. According to Royal Skousen's work, Oliver made very few mistakes, especially when compared against the other scribes. He also was aware that he was the better scribe. So he made a copy of the original manuscript into the printer's manuscript because after the 116 pages were lost, they never let the original manuscript into anyone else's hands after that. So when they were taking it to the printer, they made another copy. And Oliver has taken liberties in some cases in the printer's manuscript to add a few words here and there to the original manuscript that was written by other scribes. In most cases, these were really minor revisions, things like adding of the Lord to a phrase, the commandment. So instead of reading the commandment, it now reads the commandment of the Lord. And you can see a list of all those changes on Royal Skousen's website. So I'll refer you to that. But, you know, having been a really experienced scribe, Oliver may have just thought that these corrections he was making to the text belonged there in the first place and that they were just scribal mistakes. In May 1829, as they were in the middle of the translation of the Book of Mormon, Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith received the Aaronic priesthood from John the Baptist before baptizing each other, and then they received the Melchizedek priesthood from Peter, James, and John. I have always thought this is a very underrated moment in church history. There's so much discussion among those who want to disprove the testimony of the three witnesses. They say things like, well, do they actually see with their real eyes or were they talking about their spiritual eyes? Were they in some sort of hypnotic state? But then you have Oliver here who is literally saying, quote, upon this head has Peter, James, and John laid their hands and conferred the holy Melchizedek priesthood. And that leaves so little room for doubt in my mind that he believes that that is exactly what happened. It's clear from the record that Oliver considers this one of the pinnacle points in his life. Multiple times, Oliver reaffirms that he received the priesthood by laying on of hands from angels. He states, quote, "'Where was room for doubt?' nowhere. Uncertainty had fled. Doubt had sunk. No more to rise. I think for Oliver, this was his great before and after moment, right? This is the hinge point. And this is pretty well documented. Richard Anderson, who's done a ton of work on the witnesses, said, quote, a careful search of authentic documents on Oliver Cowdery's life discloses an impressive number of declarations on priesthood restoration. These were made during his career in the church as its second priesthood officer, in the midst of his personal trials and resentments outside of its organization, at his final reconciliation with the church, and at the closing moments of his life. One may choose to believe such testimony, but no informed person can deny that it exists. Close quote. 
And as I've done research for this podcast, which really has been very time intensive, I can attest to the fact that I found the same thing. Oliver repeats his testimony of the priesthood over and over again. It's hard to overstate Oliver Cowdery's involvement in the early church. In fact, Susan Easton Black says that excluding Joseph Smith, quote, no other person is mentioned more often in the Doctrine and Covenants than Oliver Cowdery. Either his name appears or he's specifically addressed in 30 sections, close quote. I think it's fair to say that at this point, Oliver Cowdery considers himself as more of a co-founder in the church. In 1829, Oliver Cowdery writes down something called the Articles of the Church of Christ. And this revelation he receives starts out this way, quote, a commandment from God unto Oliver, how he should build up his church and the manner thereof, close quote. This document details some of the early procedures for baptism and priesthood. And a version of this document actually becomes section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants. But before it became section 20, Joseph Smith worked on this revelation too. And I think this is an important point to note how this revelation process worked. So it sounds like Joseph Smith pretty frequently wrote down revelations, and then he'd go back and think about the wording and make sure that it was right and that it captured his feelings. And that's the case here as well. Oliver actually received the revelation, recorded it, and then Joseph Smith went back through and with that spirit of revelation decided where to make adjustments to the wording. Well, one of these adjustments Oliver really did not like. Joseph Smith had added the words, quote, and truly manifest by their works that they have received the Spirit unto the remission of their sins. Close quote. This is where they're talking about how baptism works and who can qualify for baptism. And Oliver didn't think that was in the spirit of the original revelation. And he wrote to Joseph Smith in a letter in 1830, quote, I command you in the name of God to erase those words that no priestcraft be among us. Close quote. Joseph, in turn, responds by writing back to Oliver and asking, quote, by what authority he took upon him to command me to alter or erase, to add or diminish to, or from a revelation or commandment from Almighty God, close quote. So we see in the beginnings of the church this difficult, I don't know, dance, trying to figure out where each person's place is. And Oliver is really trying to figure that out. Where is my place? And to his credit, he accepts Joseph Smith's wording in the articles. We have kind of a similar incident later in August of 1830. A man named Hiram Page is using his own seer stone to receive revelations for the church. And Oliver believes them along with most of the Whitmer family. So at the church's September conference... Joseph Smith announces that these revelations are of the devil and that Hiram Page is being deceived. And again, to Hiram's credit and to the credit of all of the Whitmer family and Oliver Cowdery, the stones discarded, they discard those revelations and they align in this order, right? That while all of us can receive revelation, there's one who receives revelation for the whole church and that's the prophet. And, and they accept this as God's law. This revelation was received and is now known as Doctrine and Covenants section 28, and we'll talk more about that order when we get to that section. But I wanted to mention that in this same section, Oliver Cowdery was called to go on a mission to the American Indians or the Indigenous Americans, and he takes with him Parley P. Pratt, Peter Whitmer, and Ziba Peterson. And while they're on this mission in Ohio, they stop in on one of Parley P. Pratt's former ministers, a man named Sidney Rigdon. And this name should sound familiar to you. He becomes one of the leaders of the church. 
and he is currently a minister to a large congregation, and members of that congregation also join the church and become future leaders. People like Edward Partridge, who becomes a bishop, people like Lyman White, um, Isaac Morley. And so this is considered a really successful mission that Oliver Cowdery participated in. In 1831, members of the church gathered to that area in Kirtland where Sidney Rigdon was, and they stayed there for quite some time. In 1832, Oliver Cowdery marries Elizabeth Whitmer, who's the daughter of Peter Whitmer. Throughout their marriage, they have five children, only one of whom lives to adulthood. In 1833, Oliver Cowdery acquires a printing press for the church. He then becomes the editor of the church's publication, The Evening and the Morning Star. And then later in 1934, he becomes the editor of another LDS publication called The LDS Messenger and Advocate. Okay, and then we have this pretty interesting incident that happens in 1835. 1835 is when Joseph Smith had his first plural marriage to a girl named Fanny Alger. We're not exactly sure how Oliver learns about this, but one account states that when Emma discovered Joseph Smith's relationship with Fanny, she was so angry and, quote, the storm became so furious that Joseph was obliged to send at midnight for Oliver Cowdery, his scribe, to come and endeavor to settle matters between them, close quote. So that story isn't verified by any other sources that I can tell. So I'm not exactly sure if that's the way that Oliver learned about Joseph Smith practicing polygamy. But however he learned of it, it's pretty clear that he didn't realize it was a marriage. He really thought it was an affair. And maybe you can appreciate Oliver's difficult dilemma here. He's just been in several instances where he's been told, this is the order of the church. Joseph Smith is the prophet. And yet it's clear that he does not approve of this behavior. So I don't know. I wonder kind of how he felt at the time. I should clarify here that while Joseph Smith started practicing polygamy as early as 1935 in this instance, he didn't actually start making it public to other people until 1940-ish. So this would have been pretty shocking for Oliver at the time, I think. And I feel like I can imagine him trying to work things out in his mind and maybe discussing it with other members of the church. Somehow it did get out. And we'll discuss that when we come to his excommunication proceedings. During this time in Kirtland, the saints have built the temple, which actually functions more like a meeting house and less like a temple nowadays. They didn't have the endowment at that time. And then in 1837, the church has this really difficult year. I mean, real rough. One of the main causes of this difficulty was the failure of a church bank called the Kirtland Safety Society. There were several reasons that the church determined that a bank would be beneficial both to itself and also to the members of the community. I'm not going to get into a lot of detail on these reasons or a ton of detail in the way the bank failed, frankly, because I don't understand all of the detail or all of the financial intricacies of the situation, but I will link to some excellent literature on the subject in my show notes. I will try to explain some of the basics as I understand them. So the Kirtland Safety Society wasn't technically a bank, although it acted like one. They were denied a banking charter by the legislature, but in 1837, they determined to go ahead and open as an anti-banking society. According to one Latter-day Saint scholar, this was actually really common. She says, this was, quote, a common extra-legal workaround used by many societies in Ohio and it was rarely regulated or prosecuted. Unfortunately 
for us, the small-scale bank that the Safety Society was has no modern parallels and is an oddity of early community banking, close quote. So it's difficult for us in our modern era with highly regulated banking systems to really understand what was going on here, but this was apparently a common practice. The Kirtland Safety Society, though, failed by November 1837. It was less than one year after opening, and there were lots of factors that contributed to its failure. The initial capital stock at the time was extremely high by that day's standards. Also, many of the people who contributed to the stock didn't make their payments, and there were some instances of embezzlement. And then there was a nationwide run on the banks, which was called the Panic of 1837. So there were lots of factors that contributed to the bank's failure. But a lot of people, since Joseph Smith was kind of heading up this project, saw this as evidence that he was a fallen prophet. Warren Cowdery, Oliver's brother, wrote, quote, Whenever a people have unlimited confidence in a civil or ecclesiastical ruler or rulers who are but men like themselves and begin to think they can do no wrong, they increase their tyranny and oppression, establish a principle that man, poor, frail lump of mortality like themselves, is infallible. Who does not see a principle of popery? Close quote. So people are really grappling with this idea of what does it mean to be a prophet and can they make mistakes? And how much of our agency can we turn over to them without taking responsibility for our own choices. And Oliver is in the midst of that struggle too. From April to September of 1837, so this is right before the bank's failure, he served as a justice of the peace in Kirtland. And he eventually resigned. During that difficult time of the Kirtland Safety Society, most of his cases and his dockets involved debts. Okay, so a year later, this is after the bank failure and after he's resigned as justice of the peace in Kirtland. In April of 1838, he's accused of some charges which are brought before a council for excommunication. Here are his charges. This is a long list, but bear with me here. Number one, he's a charge of stirring up the enemy and promoting lawsuits. Number two, he is accused of seeking to destroy the character of President Joseph Smith Jr. by falsely insinuating that he was guilty of adultery. Okay, this is one that I'm going to go in a little more depth on. So you remember that situation with Fanny Alger? Oliver thinks that Joseph Smith is committing adultery. I can't imagine what a heavy burden that would be to bear. It's interesting that this charge says insinuating, right? As far as we know, it doesn't seem like Oliver ever really came out and told anyone. Somehow the story got out about Fanny Alger. But when people went to ask Oliver about it, he doesn't come out and directly say it. So Thomas B. Marsh was one of the members of this council in the excommunication hearings. And he stated during that proceeding, quote, David W. Patton asked Oliver Cowdery if he, Joseph Smith Jr., had confessed to his wife that he was guilty of adultery with a certain girl. When Oliver Cowdery cocked up his eye very knowingly and hesitated to answer the question, saying he did not know as he was bound to answer the question, yet conveyed the idea that it was true. Close quote. So David Patton's coming right out and asking Oliver Cowdery something along the lines of, I've heard this rumor and I understand you're the one to talk to about it. Are you telling me that Joseph Smith admitted to his wife that he was committing adultery? And Oliver's like, I'm... I don't have to answer that question. But by cocking his head knowingly, he leads David to believe that that is the case. So that is what he's being accused of here. But then, of course, actually, it ends up being true. Joseph Smith was involved with Fanny Alger in that way. It was just not 
in the way that Oliver had assumed. Okay, charge number three, for treating the church with contempt by not attending meetings. Charge number four, for denying the faith by declaring that he would not be governed by any ecclesiastical authority nor revelation whatever in his temporal affairs. Charge five, for selling his lands in Jackson County contrary to the revelations. Number six, for writing and sending an insulting letter to President Thomas P. Marsh while on the High Council, attending to the, to the duties of his office as president of the council and by insulting the whole council with the contents of said letter. Charge seven, for leaving the calling in which God had appointed him for the sake of filthy lucre and turning to the practice of law. Charge eight, for disgracing the church by lying, being connected in the bogus business, as common report says. So bogus business was counterfeiting, which Oliver Cowdery being involved in the bank would have had access to the press uh, that printed the notes for the bank. And so that's what he's being accused of here. And then charge nine for dishonestly retaining notes. And by notes, they mean uh, bank notes after they had been paid. And finally for leaving or forsaking the cause of God and betaking himself to the beggarly elements of the world and neglecting his high and holy calling contrary to his profession. Okay, so pretty stiff charges there. It should be noted that these charges were made by members of the 12, and Joseph Smith wasn't present at the time of this excommunication hearing, which was a great disappointment to Oliver Cowdery. Oliver only responds to two of the charges. He responds to number five and number four, which, if you recall, are the charges involving his not being governed by church authority in his temporal affairs and for selling his lands in Jackson County. So the lands in Jackson County were rightfully his, but they had been consecrated to the Lord. This is how Oliver Cowdery responds, quote, this charge, quote, for selling his lands in Jackson County, I acknowledge to be true. With regard to this, I shall only remark that the three great principles of English liberty as laid down in the books are the right of personal security, the right of personal liberty, and the right of private property. My venerable ancestor was among that little band who landed on the rocks of Plymouth in 1620. With him, he brought those maxims and a body of those laws, which were the result and experience of many centuries on the basis of which now stands our great and happy government. And they are so interwoven in my nature, have so long been inculcated into my mind by a liberal and intelligent ancestry that I am wholly unwilling to exchange them for anything less liberal, less benevolent, or less free. And then he pleads with them, as far as relates to the other seven charges, I shall lay them carefully away and take such a course with regard to them as I may feel bound by my honor to answer to my rising posterity. I beg you, sir, to take no view of the foregoing remarks other than my belief on the outward government of the church. Close quote. Okay, I hadn't really wanted to editorialize. <laughs> during this telling of Oliver's history, but I really can't help but empathize with him in this situation. He has these deeply conflicting values, right? He's talking about his deep love of freedom and liberty, which is so intertwined in the Book of Mormon narrative too, right? And he feels like that liberty is at odds with this ecclesiastical authority. And that's a hard thing to work out. So I really empathize with him. Oliver Cowdery is excommunicated and he's driven out of town by the members of the church. During his time away from the church, he was a lawyer and also a politician, and he was highly respected in his community. I'm just going to read a couple of quotes from some of his contemporaries. Quote, Cowdery was an able lawyer and an agreeable, irreproachable gentleman. Close quote. 
William Gibson said, quote, he was an able lawyer, a fine orator, a ready debater, and led a blameless life while residing in this city. Close quote. John Breslin, who was an editor in Ohio, said, quote, Mr. Cowdery earned himself an enviable distinction at the bar of this place and of this judicial circuit as a sound and able lawyer, and as a citizen, none could have been more esteemed. Close quote. Then he added, quote, his honesty, integrity, and industry were worthy the imitation of all, close quote. Horace Tenney, an editor of another newspaper, described Oliver as, quote, a man of sterling integrity, sound and vigorous intellect, and every way worthy, honest, and capable, close quote. My favorite description of him is by William Lang, who worked closely in Oliver Cowdery's practice. He said, Mr. Cowdery was an able lawyer and a great advocate. His manners were easy and gentlemanly. He was polite, dignified, yet courteous. He was modest and reserved, never spoke ill of anyone, never complained. Close quote. I think it's really telling that in this environment where Oliver was so well-liked and could have really succeeded as a lawyer and politician, he doesn't renounce his belief in Mormonism. Two of his contemporaries who seemed to know him really well said of his involvement with Mormonism, quote, I think that it is absolutely certain that Mr. Cowdery, after his separation from the Mormons, never conversed on the subject with his most intimate friends and never by word or act disclosed anything relating to the conception, development, or progress of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, close quote. That was from William Gibson, who was a fellow lawyer and businessman. And then William Lang, who I mentioned earlier, he, he had been an apprentice of Oliver Cowdery, and he later became a member of the Ohio Senate. He said something similar. He said, quote, Now as to whether Cowdery ever openly denounced Mormonism, let me say this to you. No man ever knew better than he how to keep his own counsel. He would never allow any man to drag him into a conversation on the subject. Close quote. In other words, he knew how to keep his mouth shut. And I just don't think he had much incentive to do so. It seems like he had every incentive to denounce his testimony and his association with Mormons, but he doesn't. Anyway, the same apprentice, Mr. Lang, also describes Oliver Cowdery at this time just carrying this air of sadness that just seemed to follow him wherever he went. And you know, who knows what we can attribute that to, but we do see that he feels this longing for the fellowship of the saints again. In fact, in 1843, there's a letter written by the Twelve asking Oliver to join Orson Hyde on a mission to Jerusalem. For whatever reason, this letter is delayed and Oliver doesn't receive it until much, much later. And Oliver responds by reciprocating their kindness. And he says, I don't have any hard feelings toward anyone. And he says that he does live in this lonely situation. So it sounds like he is wanting to rejoin them. In the same letter, Oliver reveals to the brethren why he feels like he was excommunicated in the first place. He says, quote, I believed at the time and still believe that ambitious and wicked men Envying the harmony existing between myself and the first elders of the church and hoping to get into some other men's birthright by falsehoods, the most foul and wicked caused all this difficulty from beginning to end. They succeeded in getting myself out of the church, but since they themselves have gone to perdition, in other words, they left the church, ought not old friends long tried in the furnace of affliction to be friends still? Close quote. Then he talks to them about wanting to clear his name of some of the charges 
set upon him that he was a counterfeiter and involved in the bogus business. And we don't really hear anything in the record about that. And then six months later, the prophet was killed again from his apprentice, William Lang. We have this account of his reaction, quote, Joseph Smith was killed while Oliver Cowdery lived here. I well remember the effect upon his countenance when he read the news in my presence. He immediately took the paper over to his house to read to his wife. On his return to the office, we had a long conversation on the subject, and I was surprised to hear him speak with so much kindness of a man that had so wronged him as Smith had. It elevated him greatly in my already high esteem and proved to me more than ever the nobility of his nature. Close quote. After the prophet's death, the church gets in some legal troubles, battles, and Oliver Cowdery offers to represent them and go to Washington on their behalf. And while his offers are kindly received, Ultimately, the church just decides to abandon the government and go off on their own. Over the course of this decade, while Oliver's out of the church, between 1938 and 1948, we see this fondness between the Quorum of the Twelve and Oliver, between Phineas Young and Oliver. Phineas Young is Oliver's brother-in-law, as well as Brigham Young's brother. And we also see Oliver's continued plea that his character be exonerated from the charges of counterfeiting and fraud. And eventually, Oliver reveals why this exoneration is so important to him. He says, quote, I have cherished a hope, and that one of my fondest, that I might leave such a character as those who might believe in my testimony after I should be called hence, might do so not only for the sake of the truth— but might not blush for the private character of the man who bore that testimony. I've been sensitive on the subject, I admit, but I ought to be so. You would be, under the circumstances, had you stood in the presence of John with our departed brother Joseph to receive the lesser priesthood, and in the presence of Peter to receive the greater, and looked down through time and witnessed the effects these two must produce, you would feel what you have never felt, were wicked men conspiring to lessen the effects of your testimony on man after you should have gone to your long-sought rest." As I've read these letters between Oliver Cowdery and members of the church, it seems pretty clear to me that Oliver does not want to return to the church until his name is cleared of these false charges. And I can see why. He has this vision of returning back to account to Peter, James, and John, and John the Baptist of what he's done with his testimony. And he doesn't want his testimony to be associated with the life of this person who's a fraud. In the meantime, that's keeping him out of the church. And we never really... I never really see any evidence that the church comes out and says, these charges were false. They never really do clear his name. But eventually, Oliver Cowdery seems to be okay with that. He just wants rebaptism and reassociation with the church. He says in a letter to Phineas, From henceforward, I shall double my efforts in effecting a harmonious, righteous reconciliation. I know what is right and hope I may soon see that right take place. So in 1848, Oliver goes to the Council Bluffs area, Canesville, Iowa, where the saints are preparing to trek west. And he addresses them all in a large conference, and he reaffirms his testimony of the Book of Mormon. He affirms his testimony that he was given the priesthood and that he passed the priesthood on. And finally, he proclaims that the church, quote, contains principles of salvation And if you, my hearers, will walk by its light and obey its precepts, you will be saved with an everlasting salvation in the kingdom of God on high. Brother Hyde has just said that it is very important that we keep and walk in the true channel in order to avoid the sandbars. This is true. 
The channel is here. The holy priesthood is here. Close quote. Before his rebaptism, Oliver Cowdery explained to the leaders of the church again his reasons for leaving. He felt he had been forced out by leadership of the church at the time who had all since apostatized. And then he assured them, quote, I have not come to seek place, nor to interfere with the business and calling of those men who have borne the burden since the death of Joseph. I throw myself at your feet and wish to be one of your number and be a mere member of the church. And my mere asking to be baptized is an end to all pretensions of authority. Close quote. And then Oliver was rebaptized in November of 1848. It's clear from his correspondence with his brother-in-law, Phineas Young, that Oliver Cowdery was planning on going west with the saints, with his daughter and his wife. But in August of 1849, Oliver Cowdery became very sick, and he never recovered from this illness. In March 1850, Oliver Cowdery died. But on his deathbed, surrounded by his family, both members of the church and those who had left the church, he asked to be lifted up so he could speak. And according to Phineas Young, he bore another testimony of the Book of Mormon. Okay, you guys still with me? You hung in there. Good job. That was the quick version of Oliver's life. I I really hope I made good on my promise to make that interesting. I thought it was interesting <laughs> learning about it. But I really do feel like it's necessary to put those sections 6 through 9 in the context of Oliver's life. Oliver doesn't know what will happen in his future, right? But God does. And I really think that these sections reveal that Heavenly Father was aware of Oliver. He knew what his trials would be, and he imparts Oliver with some wisdom in preparation for those trials. So let's get back, finally, to that first question. What is the significance of section 7? Why is this section sandwiched between these revelations directed to Oliver? We know that the purpose of them asking this question was to determine what happened to John the Beloved. And they're told that John the Beloved was granted his desire of remaining on earth. So he's apparently still on earth. While Peter went straight to God after his time on earth was done. But that's not the entire content of this section. We don't just learn what happened to John the Beloved. After we find out what happened to John, we see the Lord talking to Peter. And it seems like it's possible that Peter has said something to Jesus like, well, wait a minute, how come he gets to do that? (laughs) And the reason I think that is because the Lord tells Peter, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? So I feel like I say this to my kids all the time. If I do this for this child and I do something different for you, why, why does it matter? You guys are each getting something that you want. You get what he, you want. He gets what he wants. Both desires are good. To me, this is this very Mary Martha moment, right? Both Mary and Martha are serving the Lord in different ways. And the Lord's response is both of those things are good, but what is not good is for you to be jealous of each other or judge each other. And that's kind of how the Lord ends this discussion with Peter. He says, quote, ye shall both have according to your desires for ye both joy in that which ye have desired, close quote. And then in the next two sections, section eight and section nine, I believe we have this really beautiful parallel to the Peter John situation. So maybe a bit like Peter, you know, Oliver wants to serve like Joseph. He wants to translate and the Lord gives him this opportunity, but Oliver's not amazing at it. 
What Oliver is amazing at is scribing. Remember, Royal Skousen says that Oliver is by far the best scribe. And I feel like the Lord is saying to Oliver, as he said to Peter, you and Joseph are not the same. Your gifts are different. But when you use your gift of writing and Joseph uses his gift of translating, that's the way my work really gets hastened. That's my work in its expedience. So I don't think that section seven is a weird tangent at all anymore. I think it's a very purposeful precursor to Oliver's experiment with translation. It's also a foreshadowing for the rest of Oliver's life. Oliver still has to figure out the order of the church at this point. He still has to recognize that there is a divine pattern of revelation for the church. Joseph Smith has the authority to correct Oliver's revelations, right? Joseph Smith has the authority to receive revelation for the whole church, but Hiram Page doesn't. And section seven is a reminder to me that all of us have our roles in the gospel, and they're all different, they're all good, and we'll all have joy in fulfilling those roles just as did Peter and John the Beloved. And now that that question is satisfied, we can move on to number two, which is what does Oliver's experiment in translation teach us about God? So remember, section eight is the, is the section where God tells Oliver he can take a try at translation. And then in section nine, after Oliver's attempt, after his attempt, God explains to Oliver what he was doing wrong, and then he takes the privilege of translation away. And I just keep thinking, well, why couldn't he just have told Oliver in section eight how to translate so that he could have been successful? I said at the beginning of the episode that this just feels mean to me. But again, when I see a conflict between what I know of God's character and the way I'm interpreting scripture, God char- God's character wins. And I have to reevaluate the way that I'm interpreting the scripture. And so I spent a lot of time pondering this question. And the church history that we discussed today has helped me understand what the answer is, at least for me. And so the answer that I came to actually has really massive implications for my life. So let's take this problem that I had and apply it to Oliver's life as we discussed it. So why didn't God just instruct Oliver in the first place so he could have been successful? This question isn't just true of translation, but it's true of any of the events in Oliver's life, really. Like, Why didn't God reveal to Oliver that the situation between Joseph Smith and Fanny Alger was a marriage so that he wasn't so worried about it and that it didn't contribute to his excommunication? Or why didn't he tell Oliver exactly what to do with the Kirtland Safety Society so he wasn't accused of fraud later? And and if we're going to ask those questions about Oliver, we can even ask questions about the church, right? Like, why was Joseph Smith's transition into polygamy so rough and difficult for the church? And I mean, like, why didn't the Lord provide Joseph with a rollout plan for polygamy, right? (laughs) Why didn't the Lord instruct Joseph and the other church leaders about exactly how to run the Kirtland Safety Society so that it didn't fail and and so that it wasn't such a, a stumbling block for members of the church then, but also members of the church today? It still bothers people today. And, and for that matter, why didn't the Lord explain to them exactly how they could have financially supported the building of the Kirtland Temple so they didn't even have to start the Kirtland Safety Society in the first place? And, and we'll get into this later. We didn't even talk about some of the other difficult moments of the church tragedies, really, like the Mormon War in Missouri or, much later, the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Like, if this is God's church and if we are God's people— why aren't we being directed beforehand in all of these things? There's so much suffering that could have been prevented. And so 
as I study these problems, it's, it's clear that one of the answers could be God's instruction to Oliver Cowdery in section nine, verse seven, where he says, quote, you took no thought save it was to ask me. And I can't really understate the importance of asking God. We need to ask, but this doesn't feel like a complete solution to me because certainly God was consulted on several of these issues that I brought up, and yet there were still mistakes made. And why? When, when they could have been avoided? Well, the second part of God's instruction to Oliver is so revealing to me. He says in verse 8, quote, you must study it out in your mind. I don't think this is a casual instruction. Study it out in your mind. It's a call, it's a call to effort and work and a wrestle of ideas. And sometimes the wrestling lasts a long time and I think we'll be very wrong in the meantime. I don't know about the rest of you, but especially at the early stages of the pandemic when school was changed to um, that home learning, my children were really um, unmotivated to do their schoolwork. And I tried a variety of approaches. I sat next to them, walking them through every spelling word, every math problem. I tried nagging them. I tried rewarding them. But finally, I sat down with them and I said, look, school is your job and I'm available if you need my help. And so we had a little bit of structure built into the day and we had some consequences for poor grades, but I was not their taskmaster. I did not make sure they got things done and I didn't make sure they got them done like the way that I wanted them. And I did that because ultimately my goal is to train my children to be responsible as adults. I want them to be self-motivated when they're grownups. I want them to be good at managing their time and I want them to recognize the consequences of all of their actions. And my approach was not immediately successful. Some of my children actually received terrible grades at the end of the year. But then at the beginning of this year, those children had learned from their experience and their grades have improved without any change in my behavior. They had studied out the problem of school in their own minds and had determined what they wanted and what needed to be done. So this is an imperfect example, but I think that this is similar to God's approach with his children. He doesn't sit next to us looking over our shoulders as we make every choice. He lets us work things out in our own minds because ultimately his goal is to train his children to be like him. He wants us to be responsible. He wants us to be compassionate. He wants us to be wise. And so sometimes in this learning process, he allows individuals, and even in the church in some cases, it seems like, to experience failure. He allows us to suffer, and most challengingly, he allows us through our choices to cause others to suffer. But if he were to do otherwise, by being the hovering helicopter parent, God would like create an army of robots. <laughs> and he doesn't want that. He wants self-sufficient children. And that's what studying Oliver's life this week has taught me. And that's ultimately the answer to my question. Oliver's failed experiment with translation teaches me that God doesn't always tell us the answer. He gives us opportunities to work things out in our own minds so we can gain the qualities he has, so we can become more like him. I spend a lot of time working things out in my own mind, praying about decisions and then going forward with what I think is probably the best idea, but I am wrong a lot of the time. And I make a lot of decisions that cause my own suffering or the suffering of my family. And I take a lot of peace and confidence 
in the truth that God will eventually make those wrongs right. As John the Beloved wrote, quote, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. Close quote. Thanks so much for joining me in today's study of Doctrine and Covenants 6 through 9. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review. It does really help. And of course, if you have any questions about the sources for today's podcast, you can check out my show notes. See you next week.